Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Uri Ehrman. Uri, thank you so much for agreeing to join me on today's Sounding Jewish podcast episode. Happy, happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. I think we're going to have a great discussion, and I'd love to give you the chance to introduce yourself. Well, thank you, Sam. Really, again, thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure. So I'm currently the Jody Elland and Howard Reiter Fellow at the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a Kreitman Fellow at the History Department of Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Wonderful. Well, let's discuss one of your earliest encounters with Jewish sound or music and why this was such a formative experience for you. Were there particular personal or musical experiences that motivated you to want to study, in your case, Jewish opera singers? Yeah, I come from a religious background. I grew up in a modern Orthodox community in Jerusalem, in a modern Orthodox Israeli Ashkenazi community, religious family. So really, I have this background of the soundscape of this traditional Ashkenazi synagogue soundscape, but the modern Israeli garbs. But even though from a very young age, I can say that I wasn't very much religious. I didn't have this type of religiosity of a sense of God sort of as a presence in my life. But I was always having a sense of belonging, a very strong sense of community, of being part of the community. And this came forth very strongly in terms of sound. You know, sound plays a major part in this. For me, the sounds of the synagogue, sounds of certain liturgical settings, certain liturgical moments, prayer on Shabbat Eve, which is very musical. It's this set of musical moments, musical pieces. I always found that it speaks to me very profoundly. One experience that I remember vividly and that I would carry with me throughout my life is in the yeshiva. I went to the to a yeshiva, even though I wasn't very religious. I still went to the yeshiva. I picked up the most intellectual and liberal and open-minded yeshiva you can find in Israel, and that is Ma'alegid Boa. It's a yeshiva of the religious kibbutz. It was a wonderful time for me there. I spent two years there. And one of the experiences that we had there, every Shabbat, you would have the third meal, towards the end of Shabbat, and we would all sit in a very crowded room as the sun set. And, and we would sing. There was like a, a set piece, like sort of a rhapsody that you would sing together from a certain point as the sun was setting and as Shabbat was ending. And you would have this wonderful, really aesthetic experience of the light diminishing. You lose the light. You basically lose sight. Eventually it becomes pitch black. There was no light in the room, but you maintain the voice. We would sing through that. So you would have this uh, wonderful experience of a detached 
pure voice, you sort of lose yourself, but you always remain a part of the community and, and a sense of being part of something that is, is larger than yourself. These types of experience are very powerful to me. You can turn them into a metaphor, I guess, of Jewish experience in history, Jewish identity, being part of something that is bigger than you. So even though I uh, really don't consider myself a religious person, I have this very strong sense of being part of a community and something that is larger than myself. Yeah, all of that is very relatable to me as well. Not necessarily going to the yeshiva, but yeah. the appreciation specifically for Friday night services. I used to go with my grandfather, so I relate yeah. to that very much. The aesthetics of the synagogue, you know, there's something so powerful about it. So, definitely. Yeah. Did you play an instrument as well? Well, I played piano, but can't say that my uh, piano playing was any good. And it also, I started it at a relatively late age. I really got into it during uh, the university. Mm -hmm. Music always formed part of my experience, a very strong experience. First, we would have Israeli music. My parents would also play a great variety of different types of music, Yiddish, Klezmer. So I would also have that type of traditional Jewish sound playing around me. And uh, then at a certain point, I found opera. That was really a turning point in my life that also came relatively late. It happened during my BA years at the university. And that was really a turning point that really threw me much more deeper into exploring my own musicality and my own question that I had about the musical experience. Yeah. The question we as opera scholars often get is why opera? What about this spectacular, impossible art form always draws us to it? Oh, I have a lot to say about that. It's a medium that has a way of inhabiting you, completely absorbing you. You feel sort of powerless in front of it. And that's really what happened to me. First of all, it coincided with my early years at the university. And what happened to me during that time is that I was able to rediscover myself and redefine myself. I think that the academic experience has this capacity. You come into a new context, you meet new people, you develop your intellectual personality. And so all this allows you to explore other sides of you. And for me, first of all, it came through very powerfully in my process of coming out. First of all, coming out as a secular Jew, that is the time where I took down my, my kippah. And then very closely followed by that was coming out of the closet as a gay man. And there is this cliche of gays and opera, you know, opera queens. So I became an opera queen, basically. Opera for me formed a very important part of exploring my identity as a gay man. It's very hard to define what exactly about opera is able to do that type of emotional work. I guess it obviously has to do with the fact that this medium is all about expressing emotion and being vocal about it. For someone who comes out of the closet of being silent for so many years about yourself, about who you really are, there is something so transformative about this experience of being so in touch with expressing emotion and exactly who you are and being extremely vocal about it and doing it in such a sweeping and overpowering way 
But I think it's also about the ability to explore emotion, to allow yourself to explore these sides of you that are silent, that are unexplored. And opera really does that in the most spectacular and fabulous way. So for me, that was a very powerful experience that really sort of shifted my whole life, basically, and my whole trajectory as a scholar. I wanted to ask you if you have a favorite opera singer that you would love to shout out. Well, I'm going to be very cliche and mention Maria Callas. I think for a lot of people, that is the first name that comes to mind. But I'm willing to defend that. Why is it her name that comes to mind first? And it's simply that she is really, I think it's her musicianship, her ability to inhabit a role fully and to bring it about in a very, on the one hand, a very accurate way. You know, she's very true to the music. She always talks about it in interviews, that you have to pay attention to what is written, to what the composer has written, to what he wants. And she never veers away from that. She doesn't have these type of shticks that other opera singers have. I think in that sense, she's a very strict opera singer. But <laughs> within these confines of being so strict, she is able to bring these works alive using her voice that is simply incomparable in terms of its range, in terms of her mastering of the bel canto technique. And she's able to infuse these roles with so much drama while always being, you know, exact, exact in the music, exactly to, to the wishes of the composer. She's able to to really bring it about, you would say, as the composer wanted it to mm-hmm. be brought about, very intensely dramatic, sweeping way. So this combination of that unique voice that is yet very true to character, very true to the drama, as it was intended to be brought alive, to me, that is the epitome of what opera and opera professionalism is all about. And really, she was one of the first voices that captured my imagination as I went into this world of opera. But I can mention so many other names. There's actually just a recent discovery that I made, a wonderful, very lesser known Romanian mezzo from the mid 20th century. Her name is Elena Cerne, but it's spelled with a C, the Cerne. I think that is the most gorgeous, most voluptuous and most fully technically developed, properly developed voice from top to bottom. Throughout her range, she is able to sort of integrate her voice perfectly in terms of timbre, in terms of of volume. So it's in technical terms, it's an almost perfect voice and a beautiful, beautiful, voluptuous mezzo voice. 
so I always make these new revelations that opera is sort of this endless playground that you can wander uh, into and waste a lot of time actually <laughs> doing that. I empathize. I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue for me to ask you about your scholarly trajectory and why you decided that your initial research topic was the one for you. And in particular, I would just say that you are another really interesting voice to have on the podcast because of your cultural history focus. You don't consider yourself necessarily a musicologist or an ethnomusicologist or a sound studies scholar, but you come to the study of music through the lens of cultural history. And I'd love to hear about how you arrived there. Perfect. Yes. I am a historian by training. I did my uh, BA in history and history of the Jewish people at the Hebrew University. And as I was planning to go on to my MA, I was looking for a topic, you know, looking for my thesis topic. It was clear for me that I would write something that combines my two great passions. And that was history of Britain. I was very much uh, an Anglophile from a very young age. And also the history of the 18th century, that pivotal period in history that sort of heralds modernity in essence. So something about Britain in the 18th century, that was clear to me. I was also kind of considering maybe finding a Jewish aspect because I had this training also as a historian of the Jewish people. So I was playing around with these ideas, but I didn't have any topic yet. And through my exploration of opera, and that really took me by storm, I started to turn that also into part of my intellectual pursuit. I signed for courses with a scholar at Hebrew University, a musicologist, Ruth Cohen. I simply came upon her introductory course to opera by looking at the lists of courses that were available. And I said, okay, this would be a great experience to learn about opera. And I really, I found a world of intellectual pursuit that completely captured me. Ruth, with her intellectual persona that is so admirable, the way that she posits questions, the way that she is able to uncover meanings in artistic works and in historical context and sort of be able to connect things that you would not imagine were connected. And in this way, to raise a whole set of new questions so this course was really about much more than just opera. Through the lens of opera, you would ask questions about aesthetics. You would ask questions about philosophical issues. You would ask questions about political theory, about social history. I remember, for example, one paper I wrote that I could only have written for Ruth when the type of questions she's able to raise, where I compared two operas that seemed sort of uncomparable. I took Mozart's Le Nozze de Figaro, and I took Halevi's La Juif. And you would think, you know, what is there to compare about these two operas? But Ruth sort of helped me to find this prism of the questions of community and community formation that come about in these two operas in very different ways. You have in Mozart's opera a community that is disrupted by the desires of one man, an aristocrat. And you have this moment in the late 18th century where the community is able to gather around and, and sort of oppose this one man. So you have a very nucleus sense of a community that is forming, that is able to find its footing and oppose tyranny.
And then when you move to romantic opera only, I don't know, 20, 30 years after Mozart, you find that these issues and these questions sort of transformed into nationalism, you know, into this creation of a national crowd and issues that sort of nation formation and national identity and the attempts of opera to represent on stage the people. These type of works and questions really fascinated me. And I found in Ruth the type of mentor that could sort of lead me in this way. And all of this crystallized into a topic that I was able to find, which is a perfect topic. It's Jewish opera singers in 18th century Britain. Wow. These moments of serendipity, of eureka, that you find that there were Jewish opera singers. There were very important historical figures in 18th century Britain and that you are able to explore this context because not a lot of people have written about it beforehand. Yeah. I love hearing about all of this, your journey to your research, your attraction to these operas, the opportunity you had to do some comparative work. All of that is really exciting to me. I think many young scholars interested in opera and Jewish identity in some respect will find themselves drawn to La Juive as this particular example. Actually, one of my grad school essays that I submitted to NYU to other schools was about La Juive. So there's this perpetual return story, I think, for young scholars in this particular work. Before we move on, I'd love to ask you about the methodological models or tools you were using to do this work on 18th century Britain. Did you find yourself in archives? Were you working with written testimonies? What was your in into telling this story? Well, in terms of methodology, what really allowed me to do this project is digitized archives. Luckily, a variety of bodies in Britain took it upon themselves to scan and offer this very comprehensive archive of the public forms of writing that were printed in the 18th century and formed the public discourse. So you would have pamphlets, you would have newspapers, of course, magazines, periodicals of all sorts. You would have caricatures. All of this very rich material is available online and only through this availability uh, my work was doable. My work is very much focused on the public discourse and how that discourse sort of negotiated the issue of opera, particularly through the lens of the opera singers, you know, this focus on these people and these personas and how they were addressed in the public discourse. So what's fascinating about a British public discourse in the 18th century is that you have a very early example of a sort of uncensored open, very uh, multifaceted public discourse that is, is very modern and very unique in this context. Not many countries at the time had this privilege of being able to discuss issues so freely and so openly. And this really allows a historian like myself to uncover very subtle cultural dynamics. I think in a way that was not available to historians only 20 years ago because you work with a very rich set of sources 
you don't have only one newspaper that you happen upon in your archival work, but you are able not only to find that one newspaper that addresses the issues. If you have only one newspaper or one voice, then it's very difficult to realize what this one source is responding to, right? What are the underlying issues? What does it not say? But when you have a public discourse that is multi-voiced, you would always or almost always find that other newspaper that responds and sort of lets you understand what is the boundaries of the discourse, what are the real issues, and allows you as a historian to go deeper into these exchanges and their underlying arguments. So for me, the digitization was absolutely crucial in my ability to uncover this very, very rich discourse regarding opera singers. Wonderful. Who would you say have been some of your biggest mentors or advocates or role models throughout your scholarly journey? It really sounds like Ruth Cohen has been a major model for you in terms of the kinds of work that you want to do and an inspiration in a lot of ways. But I'd love to hear about your relationship with her and with other colleagues and those you've come into contact with. Definitely. I was very lucky, actually, at the Hebrew University when I wanted to pursue this specific subject, because on the one hand, I had Rutha Cohen from Musicology. And on the other hand, just about that time, another historian came to the Hebrew University from the University of Indiana, and that is Droll Varman, a specialist in 18th century British cultural history. And he has this type of a very enthusiastic intellectual persona. You know, he's always very enthusiastic about everything that he's working on and, and talking about. And he had this ability to capture the imagination of a very large group of students who followed him. He had a great number of graduate students at the university. And he really introduced me and all of us, all of this group, to new questions that we can ask in, in the realm of cultural history. Questions about identity, questions about gender, very subtle issues, and how to read the historical record and historical sources in a way that allows you to really to get into people's minds. That is what cultural history attempts to do, which is a very difficult task. What were the concepts that govern people's minds? What was the framework through which people observed their own reality and made sense of it? And how do you, as a historian, address that? So Droll was a wonderful mentor in showing us how these things can be done, and also a wonderful mentor in terms of this new methodology that was arising at the time. He himself worked with these digitized archives and did wonderful breakthrough works using these types of digitized archives. So in all these respects, I was very lucky to have the combination of these two scholars who also happened to be very good friends. So I had them both as my PhD advisors and really my mentors throughout my intellectual development at the Hebrew University. But also other scholars at the, the Hebrew University, you know, really trained me as a historian, laid the foundations of my training, my analytical abilities. I would mention Michael Hed, who was also a historian of early modern England, very scholarly, very thorough, very old school type of historian who taught me basically how to read a source how to read a source against the grain, what type of questions can we ask, considering the sources that we have. So all of this groundwork that you have to do as a historian to train yourself, I had also him as a wonderful mentor. The Hebrew University really formed a fantastic house, a fantastic home for me. 
in terms of my academic development throughout these years, I was very lucky to have these people mentor me. I'd love to hear about your recent dissertation project, how you came to that, its structure, what excited you about it, and subsequently where you've gone from there and what project you're working on right now. Okay. So really, my dissertation was about British opera singers in the 18th and early 19th century. And I think that needs to be explained, right? Why is that an issue? Why is that something to write about? Well, opera, in fact, was a hotly debated issue in 18th and 19th century Britain that it might sound strange to us today, but it was a very, very big issue at the time. It was an imported form of art, but it was imported from continental Catholic Europe, Italy. So Britons are always suspect of things that coming from the continent. And it was perceived in the early 18th century where Italian opera was brought to England by figures such as Handel. He's the most prominent figure in this respect. It was perceived as this sort of oral form of luxury that captured the imagination of the aristocracy and it's really contributing to their denigration, right, of the aristocracy. So opera was seen as this power that is able to wreak havoc in, in British society, in fact. <laughs> But there was also, from a certain period on, there was a recognition that it is an artistic achievement, that there is something salvageable in opera, that perhaps we should be able to adapt it and adopt it to the British cultural sphere in some way. This question of translation, cultural translation above borders, national borders. Handel's oratorios that he began to write from a certain period in his career were one way of solving this tension, right? We take the basic structure of Italian opera, the basic soundscape of Italian opera, the same vocal technique, but we give it more simpler vocal form of address. We set it to English text and we put it within this uh, devotional frame of reference that turns music into a form of devotion, sort of a paraliturgical artwork and in this guise, Handel's oratories quickly became the defining feature of British musical identity, or they were quickly canonized. So that was able to happen. But also, uh, this development had a sort of a stifling effect, right? Can we adapt this type of vocality, this type of sonority, beyond the confines of Handel's oratorios? Can we turn it into something that is part of our everyday lives, or everyday expression, the, the, the form, the ways that we sort of make sense of ourselves within simple stories, the same way that Italian opera was able to represent and achieve this, this type of representation? This was a major question throughout the 18th century, and from the mid-century, for example, you have one theatrical piece that I quote, this is going to be sort of the 
quote that I bring at the beginning of my book, and it's a theatrical piece very much against opera. And there's a quote there that says, John Bull, John Bull is the per- personification of Britain. John Bull was made to roar, not to sing, right? Britain is on this basically imperial quest, which is a masculine quest. This is where our efforts should be directed to. And we should not give in to these types of engagements of sensual sound over sentimental sound that goes against common sense that is nonsensical, really, and it sort of distorts language and the body and all sorts of things that opera is, is doing. So we are not supposed to sing, right? We're supposed to roar. We're supposed to inhabit this type of personality. And this really is the starting point of my project, right? The fact that can Britons sing? The fact that singing became a central issue of identity in 18th century Britain. So my book project, which is forthcoming at uh, Oxford University Press, is titled Made to Sing, Opera, Gender, and National Identity in Britain. And I really focus on the 1760s onward, because that is the period from which English language opera began. These attempts to offer Britons a vision of themselves as a singing nation through English language opera. And it was actually the singers were placed at the center of this endeavor and were really the focus of the public discourse. They were the figures that people tended to focus about because they stand at the forefront of this effort. They are the sort of spokesperson, literally, of this effort. My book is divided into three chapters. First, I focus on questions of masculinity in relation to singing, right? Can men sing? Because men are supposed to roar, not to sing, right? As we just said. So I analyze this and I explore this question through attempts from the 1760s onwards to adopt what I call high-pitched singing by men. High, the high-pitched man, it's basically castrati, an attempt to sort of borrow this type of singer from Italian opera, the castrated singer, and later with falsettists, what we today would call countertenors, and to offer this type of vocality to English audiences. And this was a very important and quite successful endeavor from the 1760s throughout the 1790s, where it sort of diminished. And this was an attempt to really transform men's singing into a sign of refinement, right? Their high-pitched is actually an, an expression of their refinement, of their gentility. So it was a deliberate attempt to break new expressive ground for uh, male singing on the public stage. But it also it, it did this at the risk of betraying opera's so, uh, sort of effeminizing effect, right? What are we hearing? Are we hearing these men as sort of being refined, or is it just uh, actually we're falling back to this feminizing effect that opera has on British men and the danger that that involves. So this is one chapter that I have. I have a chapter of the relation of singing to women. Singing is the natural domain of women, really, as it was perceived, really, throughout history. But what happens in these attempts is actually an attempt to adopt the Italian formula of the virtuosa, of that spectacular form of feminine singing. So here the question is different than the one I explore with 
men. It's not a question of can they sing, but how can they sing? What are the limits that are posed on their forms of, of singing? Because singing virtuosically, really, the woman sort of places herself in a position of authority, of power over her audience. And that is seen as something that undermines proper gender norms at the time. So this is a whole chapter that I address these questions. So really, gender is a central issue for my book, right? This is why this is cultural history, because it's not just these singers and their endeavors and their forms of singing tapped into some of the most basic concerns of contemporary society, right? How to define society and uh, gender roles within society at the time. Then the third major chapter that I have in my book is about the Jewish group of singers that I have found. And when you look at it, it sort of sits uncomfortably within this setting. You know, how do you veer from this gender focus and, and men and women all of a sudden to Jews? Right. Is- it's like men, women, and tenors, which is a book, but men, women, and Jews in a sense. Exactly. First of all, I, yeah. I'm not familiar with that book. I'll go and look <laughs> it up. But definitely. In fact, for me, you know, the, the Jewish element is was the start of this project. This was my MA thesis. So I sort of... Um, always thinking of how does this, my findings regarding uh, the Jewish singers sort of sit within my more general findings regarding men and women in my two major chapters. And what I realized, in fact, is that the Jewish singers played a vital role in these endeavors. And actually, their Jewish identity sort of tapped into these attempts in a very interesting way, because their Jewish identity, which is sort of an outsider identity, was used in a very unique way to invigorate and express this new agenda. For example, in the chapter about the high-pitched man, one of the most important singers in this project was a Jew. His name was uh, Meyer Lyon, and he, but he Italianized his name to Michael Leoni. That was his uh, name throughout his career, but he was widely recognized as a Jew throughout his career. And he was discovered, and he was a falsettist, right? He was a countertenor, and he was discovered at the Jewish synagogue in London. And in fact, you know, they have this type of vocality that is part of the Ashkenazi synagogue tradition of in early modernity. So what you have here actually is an encounter of British society with this vocality of the synagogue, you know, the falsettist singing in the synagogue that is then taken out of the synagogue in order to serve this forward-looking agenda of lyricizing men, allowing men to sing in a new manner. And Leoni's identity as a Jew tapped into this, right? His, his position as a minority spoke to this attempt in very unique ways, right? You can, you can allow new forms of conceptualizing identity and thinking of your identity, in this case, gender identity, from these type of peripheral positions. So there's a a very uh, interesting intersections between these types of prisons that I explore in my book. It's not so rigid, the distinction between the men and the Jewish chapter, for instance. Absolutely not. These exploration of identities intersect in very interesting ways. Wonderful. Well, I'm so excited to read it. I'm so excited that hopefully one day our books will be listed beside each other at Oxford. Definitely, yes. Yeah. And as you know, I've long looked up to you and your scholarship, and you've already been a mentor to me in many ways. So it's been very special to be your colleague here this year. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, I would also say the same thing to you. We've spent these three months together 
at cuts and we were able to sort of generate this very unique type of discourse between us as fellows and I've learned so much from you so this is really such a pleasure to be able to be here today and, and talk to you and, and present my work well before I let you go I'm going to ask you two questions that I typically put to all of my interviewees so the first is how do you understand the field of Jewish music and what issues or challenges with this field of study do you think that scholars today should remain attentive to? And in our case, I speak for both of us when I ask you this question, thinking of the field of Jewish music poses some complications when it comes to thinking about Jews in music, as the two of us do. So keeping that in mind, let me leave that with you and see what you make of it. Yes, well, this is a wonderful question, and it's a context that I think our uh, research projects really you know, share a lot of foundational aspects, because when you stop to think about it, I'm not writing about Jewish music. As, as it's usually understood, there is no Jewish music in uh, what I do, you know, except when I explore uh, Leone's discovery of the synagogue. Really, what I do is how British audiences perceive these singers as Jews. Sometimes there's a sense that the Jewish identity is almost imposed on these singers. One of the most important figures that I write about is John Bram, who was the most famous and successful tenor in the early 19th century in Britain, and really a very important historical figure in terms of the history of music and opera. He converted to Anglicanism. He was very careful to sort of distance himself from the Jewish community, although he maintained certain ties with the Jewish community throughout his career. I can't speak to how he perceived himself, but there is a sense that he really was trying not to be perceived as a Jew in the public sphere. And yet throughout his career, again and again, you see this sort of imposition and sort of a way in which British audiences, through his performances, they are sort of working through their own perceptions of what it is to be a Jew, what is Jewish identity, what is the place of Jews in modern British society, and what is exactly happening in this historical moment of the introduction of Jews into the general society, emancipation, etc. All these issues were debated in the public discourse through the prism of Brahms' public persona, very much, I would argue, against how Brahms wanted to be perceived. So there's a real question here about what is Jewish in the music that we explore. And I think this also speaks to your project that Jewish identity and questions of uh, Jewish identity sort of seep through in very subtle ways throughout the cultural realm. And it is also our role as cultural historians and as musicologists who are doing the work of both of these disciplines to explore these much more subtle ways in which Jewish identity sort of presented itself and was explored and debated beyond actual soundable Jewish music. There's a real question of performativity here, how through performance is always something that creates doubleness and dualness, and you cannot really control it entirely. So with the performance of these Jews, all sorts of questions and dynamics arise that I would argue form part of this world that we should explore, the world of Jewish music. Yeah, beautifully put. And the second question that I will ask you and leave our listeners with is whether you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound. Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And of course, if this question seems too essentializing, what questions about music and sound in Jewish experience would you ask instead? Yeah, wow. This is a very difficult question to answer. And I think actually, this is a perspective here of me as a historian speaking, I think that this is actually a question that you can ask about Jewish history. 
first and foremost, is there a unified Jewish history? Can we speak of, in any sense, a unified Jewish history, you know, Jewish communities having such separate historical experiences in such different historical contexts and throughout such a long stretch of time? How can we speak in any real essence about a Jewish history? And I think this is a question that historians of the Jewish people and also historians of general history must ask themselves because it really puts to the test the definition of history. What is the relation between uh, a community in uh, Yemen and a community in uh, in uh, Germany in uh, I don't know Alsace or the Rhine Valley in the Middle Ages? How can we speak about these two types of historical context as shared in some way? And I think this is something that can only be answered if you really think of certain structural elements that are defined in a very essential way, Jewish experience throughout history. And these sort of structural aspects, I would argue, are first and foremost the experience of exile, actually of being in exile. Even if you are a Jew in the land of Israel, right? The experience is that of exile, of being sort of divorced from history, divorced in a certain sense from God for a period of time. And that experience I would argue, structurally defines Jewish experience throughout the diaspora. And also, of course, a certain relationship to a set of traditions, a set of texts, of course, the Bible, but much more so the Talmud and all of this halachic production from the second temple period onward, that is also part of the shared experience of Jews throughout the diaspora. Almost all Jewish diaspora, I know the Ethiopian case is very unique in this context, but uh, I think only in these terms can we speak of a shared and unified Jewish history. And in this respect, we can speak of a shared and unified Jewish history. And all of this relates also to Jewish music. Only in, in these types of structural foundations and the way we can conceptualize them, can we speak of a unified Jewish music, the way that Jewish communities musically gave expression to their experience of exile and musically gave expression to their relation to their own inheritance, cultural inheritance, intellectual inheritance, uh, halachic inheritance, etc. In this respect, I think there is wonderful comparative work that can be done and should be done and was done already, you know, wonderfully by, by many, many scholars that allow us Yes, in a certain way to speak of a concept of Jewish music. I love where you decided to go with that answer. Thank, Thank you. you so much for speaking with me today, for your time. And I can't wait to get this episode out into the world. Thank you so much, Samantha. It was a pleasure to be here today with you. And now, a brief note from our sponsors. The Sounding Jewish podcast is grateful to be sponsored by the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. This year, in honor of its fellowship theme, The Sound and Music of Jewish Life, many of the Katz Center's public programs, both online and in person, feature scholarship devoted to Jewish music and sound. On Tuesday, February 6th, Dr. Mark Kligman will give a public Zoom webinar at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time titled Reinterpreting and Reinventing Nigunim Up to Today. 
The Jewish Music Forum will also continue its regular season of public programs dedicated to interdisciplinary Jewish music studies with a Zoom lecture on Thursday, February 15th at 7.30 p.m. by Dr. Alana Webster-Kogan titled A Scrolls-Based Reading of Jewish Text, Voice, and Exile. Please register online using the links in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania's Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Tina Fruhauf to discuss her ongoing research on the German-Jewish musical experience. Bye for now.